Okay, hello and welcome to Live from America podcast. This is Hatem, along with uh, Norm Dorman, the owner of the legendary Comedy Cellar, and the birthday boy. Happy belated birthday, sir. Thank you. Uh, and our guest, uh, Olga Nemar. She's a comedian, actress, winner of the 2018 Ladies of Laughter. Hi. And the one and only Tony Darrow, uh, <laughs> Emmy Award nominee and former writer for Saturday Night Live and the uh, Zoom show <laughs> comedian right now. <laughs> and I guess honor the return of the one and only Dr. Judith uh, Joseph. She's one of the top, top psychiatrists in the city. Uh, and she's a regular on Dr. Oz show. And now she's regular here. Welcome back. We miss Thank you. Thank you. I miss you guys too. How you been? How, how you dealing with all, with all this uh, craziness? And, and taking it one day at a time, you know? Every day is very different. And, uh, you know, just rolling with it. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, my first question is like, you know, we all know the numbers how many people get infected every day and the death and all this. What is the psychology behind the people that still resisting to wear masks? They don't want to do it. You know, like, I think that it, what I've been trying to do is use empathy and really put myself in their shoes. And I hear a lot of different things, right? I hear that people just say it's uncomfortable or people just feel like um, this COVID-19 isn't as serious as you know, the media portrays it. You, you hear a lot of different things. The bottom line is that I think that if people don't want to wear a mask, they're going to just believe anything to justify not wearing it, even though the evidence is really out there that it does prevent the spread, it does protect you, and really, you know, you should be doing it. So um, it's, it's different depending on the person, but I think that, you know, if, if, depending on your values and your core beliefs, you're going to make that decision to wear it or not. But I mean, like a lot of people, like in the beginning were against it, but then as they see the results, they're like, okay, I'll do it. You know, now still people resist and it's not even about them anymore. What about the people around them and all that? So for a lot of people, they are in denial, even though the evidence is out there, they don't want to believe what's happening. They don't want to believe these facts. They want to believe, whatever they want to believe because they don't want to wear it. Um, and, you know, I see like for older age groups, they say it's uncomfortable, right? If you have respiratory illnesses and if you like just feel so hot because it's really hot out right now, it's really uncomfortable to wear it. So for those people, they don't want to wear it because of the physical discomfort. And um, because it's so uncomfortable, they're willing, a lot of people are willing to just believe the myth right? That, that they're uh, rebreathing air, that it's unsafe for their body, even though study after study shows that it's actually really safe. I mean, surgeons have been wearing these masks in like eight, 10 hour surgeries for years and they don't fall over. They're able yeah. to do literally brain surgery wearing a mask um, for hours at a time. But people are willing to believe things because at a core, at their core, uh, you know, belief center, they just don't want to wear it. Um, and whereas others are okay wearing it because they feel like they're a hero, they're doing something, they're proactive, they're preventing the spread. So they feel as if it's their, you know, it's their civilian or civic duty to do it. And it allows them to feel empowered. So you're seeing like the opposite end of the spectrum. Some people feel empowered by not wearing it. And some people feel empowered by wearing it, right? Yeah. Uh, 
what I find to be helpful is to try and put yourself in people's shoes. I know it sounds cheesy and corny, but if you really understand the motivation behind the people who don't want to wear it, maybe you'll find something deeper happening, right? There's probably this fear of their own mortality and like being a denial helps them to feel less afraid. So but that's another level. <laughs> <laughs> Olga, why do I have the feeling that you don't, don't wear a mask? No, I wear a mask. <laughs> you sure? Me? Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. free. But I, I've been, I mean, I wear a mask, but I, I like, I go on a subway with a mask that, that, that I feel like scared about, but I've been taking tests a lot. Like what do you mean test? What? What do you mean? Like the Corona tests. You've been taking it a lot? Yeah. Like, because I, I, my parents said I want to go visit them. So, but before I go, I'll like. I'll take the test and like not do anything dangerous for like a few days. Okay. And then that makes sense, you know, but if somebody let his friends get tested because before they visit him, that's crazy. Like no one does. Yeah. <laughs> but it makes sense. Dr. Joseph, no one makes people take the test before they visit him. Is that psychologically wrong? Something is wrong with him or no? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Is that true? By the way? <laughs> I, I, yeah, of course. What, what am I crazy? <laughs> I, I don't think you know what i find that people who have let's say like you're um a business owner you are a, a job creator and you have so many people's lives depending on you i feel like people in those positions have to do that right oh let's not push it <laughs> <laughs> no look i have my kids out of school in february i've had i have six months and a million dollars or something invested in this lockdown Am I going to piss it all away to get sick from, you know, somebody wants to come, like, go get a test or don't come visit me. It's, uh, you know, I'll, I'll see you after the vaccine. That's my attitude. So, so Noam uh, actually didn't let his kids go to school way before everybody else, which, yeah. which was great. Now, Noam, if they open schools, will you let them in now? I don't, I don't know yet. I have yeah. to see. That's a tough, tough call. I, yeah. My wife's, I mean, my wife says no. Um, but I, um, uh, you know, if, if it's, if it's safe, to, then I will. I mean, I'll do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we don't, this is the thing. We don't know what, we're, what our goal is. So if there's not going to be a vaccine, let's say, then, um, and this is forever, then yeah, I guess I got to let the kids go to school. And then, I mean, they're, they're young and their risk is low and I might have to take the chances their dad because I can't keep them home for the rest of their lives. If they told me there's going to be a vaccine on January 1st, well, then that's an easy, okay, we just stay home till January 1st. Why would you take any risk now if you know that there's a clear end date to this? But if some of this other stuff is true, that the antibodies only last a month or two and they may not have a vaccine and three years from now, maybe no safer than today, then yeah, you should let them go to school. I mean... There's no good choices here, but part of the problem is that nobody really seems to want to say what the goal is. Like, we just want to stay home indefinitely. That's not, unfortunately, an option, right? It's just not. Yeah. I wish it were. Dr. Joseph, what do you think about going back to school? Kids going back so to school. So I think, again, it depends on the, on the area, right? Some places are, more, are better contained than others. We're killing it right now, like, not in a negative way, but we're doing a really great job in New York. And yeah. so if we keep it up, then you can safely return back to school. 
Um, I have colleagues who are in Hong Kong right now and they got on top of this like right at the beginning and they never shut down, right? So it depends on how your region's doing. If your region is continuing to do well in terms of the numbers and you're using science to make decisions, evidence-based decisions, you can go back to school, you can resume life. Uh, but in places where the numbers don't look good, I don't think you should be kidding yourself. That's just yeah. dangerous. So, so the kid's been, been home for a long time now. Going back to school psychologically, how do you prepare them for that? So a lot of times these kids are just really anxious and there's something called exposure therapy. It's a form of cognitive behavioral therapy. And for example, like if you've ever seen people who are afraid of flying, their therapist will first say browse, you know, pictures on the internet of like what an airplane looks like, what an airport looks like. Then you pack your bag one day as if you're going to the airport, then you go to the airport, then you actually work your way up to taking that flight. It's the same for these kids who are anxious about returning to school. First, you start visualizing it at home, imagining it, looking at things, packing your school bag, drive past the school. You know, you can gradually use exposure therapy as a parent to get your children comfortable with the idea of returning to school because it's very hard for children who've been at home, locked down, and then suddenly they're out and about and like, okay, back to normal. That's just too much for some kids. I think most children. Wow, that's very interesting. That you have to like pack your bag and like pretend that you're going oh to yeah i've done it with some of my clients like who are who have social anxiety i've actually like walked some of them to school because it's part of the exposure therapy that you like you first have this like, one week you do this next week you do that next week and you build up to that goal because that fair center in your brain the amygdala is hyperactive overactive and you got to figure out how to contain it so that you can literally re-enter society but do, do you think like they like the kids would need help like psychologically when they get back? Some children do. Um, some children are really anxious, and especially if they were heightened anxiety related to the pandemic, some children will need that gradual exposure. And that's why I think a lot of schools are just putting it out there like half the kids will return on some days, half won't. You know, they're they're actually doing the the gradual approach to return to school, so they're doing their own bit of exposure therapy. For safety reasons. Where was that when we grew up? <laughs> <laughs> Olga, you don't have kids, do you? No. Yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> Tony? Yes, yes, your sir. Your, your, your kids graduated already, right? You have? Yeah, but like my granddaughter was starting, she had done daycare. She just, she turned a year old in June. She was doing daycare. And then all of a sudden in March, they took her out of it. And she got like, she was just with her parents for a few months. And now just like recently, she started getting acclimated to other people coming back into her life. But at first it was sort of weird. Like, like when I went over there, she'd be like, oh, who's this? You know, cause she hadn't seen anybody but her parents for like months. Yeah. She hadn't seen other kids or anything. You know, I, 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 I read something interesting. I want to ask Dr. Joseph about, like the, they said the very young kids, you know, when they see it because of the mask, they they become psychologically afraid because everyone is wearing masks all the time. Is that is that correct? Psychologically afraid of of, of not of, wearing masks. No, of taking off the mask of somebody without oh, a yeah. mask. They do. I mean, it's because they've become so accustomed to this is life. And if you're if you catch a child early on in development and they started wearing the mask, let's say age two three, and then they're having a fourth birthday 
and then they they're going outside and seeing people without masks they it's hard for them to process it and so what i suggest is gradually again exposing children to this idea so you can show them uh pictures on your smartphone like this is what we're going to see this some of them will be wearing a mask some will not you can act it out with toys um you know have some of the characters act out a scenario if you're going to grandma grandpa's house grandma's going to be there we still have to be far from her you have the toys or draw pictures and that kind of helps a child to expose them to the idea of what's going to happen rather than just slamming them with okay we get out the car here we are you know um and for some children it's it's just too much they become very overwhelmed and they need to have these concepts uh gradually introduced to them or else they will have anxiety and you're going to have a child acting out and then everyone's going to be like what's happening you know why are they acting like that well you can't blame them you know they just weren't developmentally prepared for that type of exposure so abruptly hmm. what about teenagers teenagers are different because they understood the concept from the beginning right you can explain a virus you can explain a pandemic you can explain social distancing to a teenager, will they abide by it? I mean, some of my clients have really had a hard time with reinforcing that with their teenagers because you know teenagers take risks. Um, but I think it's it's I, it's easier for teenagers unless they have something like autism or another cognitive challenge where they they have a harder time with certain concepts. They they're they're easier in terms of um, their adjustment to to be around others. Um, it's easier for them to grasp that concept because they're developmentally more advanced. Noam, do you feel the kids are ready? Or you have to... Uh, ready for what? Did, did they understand what's going on? Like ready to go back to school? Yeah, my son, my son Manny, I think he's uh, uh, gonna develop a cure for the virus, actually. He's seven. How, how old is he? He's seven. He's convinced that he's on. he has a cure for the, the coronavirus. <laughs> and what is um, it? We should interview him. He said, I wouldn't <laughs> understand. Um, uh, uh, I mean the kid, yeah, my kids, my kids are not, have not been very traumatized by this because, you know, first of all, they have each other and we have a backyard and, and, um, it's been this, we've, we've been very lucky compared to like what, what, what some families are going through alone departments in the city, only children, um, cooped up, no space to run around. My kids have not had it tough, I would say. My kids are pretty, my kids are fine. So I'm very, very, well, if he's finding that, well, well, Israel is very close to find a um, cure, they said, you know, a vaccine. Well, that's because this is because they had it all along, because when they spread the virus, they already had the cure ready to go. Oh, thank right? you. <laughs> thank you. That, that's based on a true story. You know, <laughs> the Jews are behind the virus. I have some, some scientifically, uh, resources and many can back me up on that <laughs> so what, what about adults what about us dr joseph like like we've been we've been home for a long time you know like no i'm having left his house right one time you left your house a couple times very short yeah since since march yeah so is he gonna be normal like when i meet him again <laughs> <laughs> that's impressive uh <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna be normal. I'm, uh, I mean, I, it's just not. It's not that hard. I think I, I don't know. It's not like prison. That's traumatic. I mean, it's it sucks. Sucks is not the same thing as trauma. You can you can you can you can you can. I mean, I'm not a psychologist psychiatrist, but 
I think you can deal with this really sucks for a long time. Uh-huh. That is not the same thing as traumatic and life-changing. It's not PTSD. It's just this, boy, that really was horrible. That, that, that was just the most miserable year. That's not think, the same thing as 9-11. Uh, honestly, if I'm to be honest, last year was worse. But, Why? you know. I don't know. I just, because it was more stress. To me, this is very, uh, you know. I'll even, I'll even say something pandemics else. Pandemics are relaxing. What? I, yeah, I, I, will, I will say something else. In, in most crises in life, especially as a businessman, you are constantly trying to figure out what to do. Do I go this way? Do I that way? Did I make the right decision? Second guessing yourself. Uh, did, I, did I consider it changing your mind? And then waiting to see... Is it going to turn out? There's nothing to do here. Like, like in, in a sense, this is no. the worst thing that's ever happened to me. But on the other hand, there's not a single thing I can question, worry about, second guess myself about. So it is, it is relaxing in that way. You know, it's like, not think about it. You know, it's like, I, I, don't, I don't look at the bank account. I don't look at the numbers. I, I just, you know, I, I, Amazon delivers the groceries and I just, I'm just like kind of, like in you know compartmentalizing until it's done, and I'm not really stressed. So in that sense, it's easier than, than a normal crisis. Doctor Jones is smiling, so I think she sees a patient. And <laughs> you, there's a future patient. I mean, Olga, how are you dealing with all this? Doctor Joseph, that's a that's a healthy outlook, Doctor Joseph. Don't you know that? <laughs> um, so I mean, you are like I mentioned. I, you're a business owner. Your job provider. Staying in the house for the entire stretch is uh, that's really extreme. Uh, you know, most people would be feeling a bit like anxious and feeling as if they're trapped. The less healthy the people, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, let me not exaggerate. I, I have I have a I have a nice uh, backyard, so we get to run around. I have six people in my house, so we're not lonely. My business has been shut down. It's not, like, it's not like I could go. There's no place for me to go. So where could I go? I could go into the grocery store and stress out. Like, where, where could I even go? Well, I mean, you're, you're in the entertainment industry. A lot of people have really moved online with their... Yeah, but that's still home. Yeah. So, ha- yeah. I don't know. I'm sorry. I haven't... Have you guys moved online in terms of your shows? Uh, we're, we're, we're thinking about it. We haven't really. But I'm saying... But even still, I wouldn't be leaving the house, is what I'm saying. You know, it's like just... Um, well, what's your fear about leaving the house to go for a walk? No, I have no fear. I just, I, I, I have no, I, I have no fear about going for a walk. I'm not like, uh, in, I'm not in the house scared. If I lived in the city, I would go out for a walk. But I'm saying is that I'm, um, like we, we have a lot of, uh, a lot of things I can do, uh, in my own little cloistered area here that someone who lived in an apartment couldn't do. So I can go out and run around uh, in my backyard, you know, like I can play with the kids. I, I, so I can go, you know, and we do, we have one friend we go over uh, who's been also been quarantined. And we go over like once a week, we have dinner and play basketball and stuff. I don't know. He's trying, he always tries to make me seem like some sort of weirdo, but I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> you, just, you just said we have one friend. <laughs> <laughs> Olga, what, what's, what's up with you? Listen, I know people, I have friends whose people whose parents died from this. Like, you almost died from it. I'm yeah, like, sure. like, 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 I'm not in denial. Uh, you know, people, what people are doing is they're rationalizing 
Now it's in the opposite direction. For a while, they were rationalizing risk in an unhealthy way, yeah. just trying to you know find some way why it's okay when it was really made sense to stay home. Now it may be the opposite. Now there's probably less COVID out there there than there was in the end of February and the beginning of March when we were all running around having time of our lives. There's very little, fewer than one percent of cases come back uh, positive now, I think, and it's those like are people who. What's that? 1.14. And those are people who think they have COVID taking the tests, mm -hmm. right? It's self-selected. So it's, it's very rare now. So it's probably okay. And I've seen some articles that said in New York, um, certain neighborhoods and maybe everybody might have some herd immunity. It seems like it because why aren't we spiking? I don't see people wearing masks so much more than they are in LA. I mean, yeah. it seems like are the wave went through New York, killed a lot of people, killed the old age homes and a lot of people have antibodies and doesn't seem to be spreading very much in New York now. So we're, we may be in pretty good shape, actually, in New York. We'll see. Hopefully. Yeah. Olga, uh, I wanted to ask you, what, uh, how are you dealing with this? Are you going out? Are you, no. you go to shul? I was, no, <laughs> it was horrible for me. And I think it's so much harder for single people. Like, really way harder. No, because... Really? I don't know. What? Do, really? Do you, do you rather be stuck with someone for six, <laughs> <laughs> for six months? Well, or for me, it was very hard because my family, like, I don't get along. I get along with them, but like, like the second this thing happened, my dad's like, told me like, and maybe if you didn't make stupid life choices, like comedy wouldn't be alone. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty <Yeah>. funny. <laughs> well, where exactly was he wrong about that? Well, <laughs> if you didn't make these I, life I choices, this never would have happened to the world. <laughs> yeah, and if I did, and by, by the way, like, let's say I did get married, the chances of my husband getting hit by a car is bigger than this pandemic. No. Not, not if he's an Orthodox Jew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, by the way, what, so what do you think about that? Like, so, wait, so let me be clear. You were raised Orthodox. I was raised modern Orthodox. Oh, so that's, that's like that's already like the more reasonable um edge. Just like Peter Beinart is modern orthodox, I think, right? So But I'm Syrian, so it's like a lot of Arab culture, I guess. Like I got married very young. I'm divorced now, but I got married at 18. Uh and that so and the How girl, old was he? What? How old was he? 30 uh he was 18 years older than me, so what at 36. Why did he divorce you? Why did he divorce you? <laughs> <laughs> he got indicted. Wow. Yeah. For what? Uh, uh, bribery, conspiracy, wire fraud, tax fraud, mail fraud, tax evasion. He took the bribery or he gave then the bribe? He bribed uh, a government official. Because wow. he, he's a, he's a what, real estate. So he, they said he bribed a, uh, this guy to like pay, like get higher rent for government spaces. Wow. Oh, interesting. Maybe Tony's right. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't, go, you don't go out at all, Olga? Me? I, I've been, I go out, I had no, I didn't know what to, I didn't know where to go. I didn't want to stay in my apartment by myself. And I wasn't really allowed to go to my parents because they're old, but also I didn't want to, I didn't want to be with them. Uh, but so like I went, I was in Vermont for a month and I, 
is it I went to California for a month. I know, I'm sorry. I wore a mask on the plane and then I came back here and now I'm here and I go out. I'm not like going in public places, but I go, there's like restaurant, outdoor seating. I don't, I mean. <laughs> that would make it sense in a public place. <laughs> yeah. All right, but public <laughs> Well, I, th I think it's pretty, how old are you? 33. Yeah, I think it's pretty safe. I mean, I'm I'm 58 as of the day before yesterday, so I, you know I have to be more careful. So this is the the statistic. One, uh, let me get it right. 180 year olds. How many 25 year olds need to have COVID to produce the same number of deaths as 180 year olds? Get take a guess. Wait, 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 wait. How many? Oh, um, like a lot, like maybe. I mean, what do you, a million? I don't know. No, no, it's not that. 20,000. So, oh, wow. to, so, to, so like one fifth. So 20 out of 180 year olds will probably die according to ACC, CDC. To get 20 deaths of 25 year olds, you have to have 20,000 cases. Mm -hmm. So that's just a really, to me, like, it really depends on your risk profile here. If you're 30 yeah. or 30 years old, I mean, the chances are lower catching it. And then if you do catch it, the chances of actually dying from it are astronomically low. So you really don't have that much to worry about. You're approaching other risks you take in your life, like getting in a taxi. I mean, you know, there's risks. Yeah. I mean, but it, also, it also depends on your viral load exposure. So if you're around people who are really sick, let's say you're around five sick people yeah. and you're 20, your, your chances of getting it, your viral load exposure is going to be higher. So... That's how you do see twenty-year-olds dying. Um, yeah, but but much 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 less often. Yeah, the viral load apparently is very important. I think it's also just being like, uh, I mean, if I'm not going, I don't want to be around people who are high risk because I'm not careful. Do you know? So it's about that. But also, um, my whole family got it, like okay. everyone. So and they all not my parents, but the my sister and she was so careful. She didn't leave the house. Her and her husband got it, the kids. My cousins all had it. They all recovered. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Have you checked your antibodies? I, didn't, I don't have antibodies. You don't have antibodies. It. And it, um, but everyone in my, like a lot of people in my community uh, got it. And a lot of people, the older people, a lot died. But it was like, now everyone's, I don't know, everyone had it. So they all go to like this place in the summer together. And like, I don't know how careful they're being. Like they have camp now. Like, yeah, uh, no, that's not a good idea. We're going to Maine. I'm going to Maine uh, uh, to, to spend a week in a house on, on the beach. Uh, I don't know if it's, I'm going to do it. I don't know. I think it's okay. We're just going to stay in the house on the beach. Maine has low numbers. Yeah. Right. They have low numbers in. I mean, it seems to me that, I mean, given all the, the those protests, it really does seem like outdoor transmission is not th that high. It just uh, seems that way. Who knows? I mean, we'll see. I guess. What so, a time! I can't. Yeah. I can't believe we're living through this. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Doctor, I want to ask you something about the psychology behind the following. So when I was sick, you know, I was in the hospital. No one was calling me every day, two, three times, checking on me the whole time. So he became like a great friend. The minute I felt good, 
not a phone call, not returning <laughs> my email, nothing, you know. But, so is he a good friend or not a good friend? Because I was like in love. I was like, this guy's my best friend. I'm going to go out and hang out with him every day. And then he doesn't call. He doesn't email, nothing. What's up with that? Only when I'm dying, he's my friend? <laughs> first, of all, first of all, before you answer, doctor, because um, if, 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 if we're going to, you know, um, surreptitiously suck you into a group therapy session here. I think we should probably pay you. <laughs> you know, send me your, your PayPal link, but go ahead, answer the question. <laughs> well, there's something called compassion fatigue, right? Um, I oh, yes. a lot of healthcare workers, and like at first, there, there were, I was hearing a lot of like, oh my gosh, I'm the last person this person's going to talk to or see because their family's not allowed in here. And like, I heard a lot of compassion, compassion, compassion. And then after a, like a month or two, I just heard, I stopped hearing about this compassion. Yeah. And people just start to feel, getting, they, they get numb. It's like they're, they don't have anything left to give, right? I'm not saying that's what's happening here. It sounds um, like that's what you're saying. But, but, but you know, like people <laughs> really get tired of, of, of feeling after a while because it's draining, you know? Yeah. But Nobody I mean, he would go beyond, like he would literally, call me and text me every day like you know some people just text to check on you whatever like tony but well, some people will <laughs> no tony was great too he brought me a book to the hospital this is the dumbest thing you've ever said okay first of all i don't i don't go into my daughter's room and, and check put my hand on her forehead when she's healthy it's like i don't i don't check her i leave her alone I, she sleeps all night without me bothering her when she's sick i go in a few times a night and i check on her you don't get that? You're not sick anymore, so I'm not checking on you. <laughs> That's why we never have... Plus, also, now that we know the whole idea, the will is off the table. We're not <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. see you two times a week on these podcasts. I, like, what, what more do you want from me? <laughs> <laughs> but you went to the hospital? They let you in to visit? No. I, oh. No, no, there was nobody was allowed. You know, yeah. you know I don't know if you remember, I did my surgery, you remember? Yeah, so it was, uh, and then I got COVID right wow. then. Yeah. I did not know that. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah, but, yeah, it's amazing. I'm so glad you're okay. Oh, thank you. Yeah. With the, support, with the support of some friends. <laughs> he had COVID while he had a heart transplant. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. He was freaking out. It was crazy. Yeah, I mean, the first two days, were, because that when I had it, I had it in the very beginning when nobody really knew anything. My doctors were crying. Everybody was crying because I had to take um, uh, medicine to, to kill my immune system for the surgery. So I had no immune system and I got COVID. So, but you know, it was, it was all right. And what did that feel like? Like when you think you're going to die? <laughs> oh, yeah. He was, he was counting the virgins, baby. Counting the virgins. <laughs> 70, 71. <laughs> Actually, Noam, Noam told me one of the funny stories. Manny, his dad, when he was uh, in the hospital uh, in his last day and Noam was with him, he saw two Muslim women coming and Manny was like, where's the other 70? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah he, he didn't quite get the story right, but I'm not going to tell him because now you're in a puzzle. <laughs> but, anyway. Oh, well. Oh, well. So, so uh, another thing I wanted to ask you, Dr. Jez, about going back to school, about teaching kids uh, and stuff like that. You know, how do we talk to kids about the current events, uh, race, and, and, and the issues, and the police brutality, and all that? Like, they see what's going on. How I mean, we... I, think, I, I think you got to look at the age group. 
and you know every and people will disagree with me but we have to start talking about race in my opinion from like day one because children do see color they see differences in facial features an infant on day one will start to mimic your facial features like if you stick your tongue out to an infant that's born they'll stick their tongue out right back at you so they see it and young children see the difference between i have a four i have a, a almost four-year-old and she notices the difference between her and her best friend she's like her best friend has uh, blonde hair blue eyes she has brown eyes you know brown skin so she sees these differences and you know like if you talk about it children will sense that you're open and they'll also sense whether or not you're apprehensive and so from day one i encourage families to talk about differences because you know if you tell children we don't see color there's no such thing as color we're all the same it's not true um you know we all have different colors we're not all the same yes we are all valuable and important and we're all humans but we're not all the same we don't have the same experiences and so if you kind of like tell children one thing and they're seeing another thing they're going to get their answers elsewhere um and you know i i mentioned recently that i, I spoke to a young mother who was like crying to me saying that her her child was looking at the things that were happening in the world and said something like, oh, this is happening because black people are bad. And like, she was like shocked. She's like, we don't raise our child that way. But I was like, well, do you even talk about this stuff? And she said, no, uh, we just say like- How old was the child? The child was four. Four. Yeah, she was like, why are people out there like protest? Why are they yelling? And why, yeah. children learn about this stuff. They have nannies, they have babysitters, they have playmates, they see it on the news. They listen to what you're talking about. And so like, you know, telling kids that we're all the same is not accurate. And it's also invalidating for children who don't have the same experience as someone who's not, you know, of color. So uh, can, can I, can I, I don't, I don't want to say I disagree with you, but I, I, maybe I don't fully agree with you, but, but I, I think it may be, it may be case specific. So let me just tell you my ex experience. Um, so my wife is uh, of color, and I, I said because I, I I don't I don't really like the expression. Anyway, my wife's of color; she's Indian and Puerto Rican, and my children are mixed. I don't know if they I don't know if they present as mixed. Some people tell me they do. Some people tell me they don't. Definitely, my 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 daughter is is dark and could be taken for something exotic other than white, but not, it's not clear, like, she doesn't look any particular race, whatever it is. I can put up a picture of her. So, and, you know, and we grew up in a, because I'm a musician, we, she, they grew up in a home where there was just always people of different races and ethnicities in and out of the house and socializing and both socially and, and professionally. And of course they noticed the difference, but I don't think they ever, they were ever um, uh, thought that, well, I don't think they identified race. Like they were known as blonde hair, blue, blue, uh, blue eyes, brown eyes, dark skin, uh, these kind of eyes, those kind of eyes. And these were just the variation they would notice, but I never, I never saw them put any kind of um, importance on it other than they might notice it. So then my daughter in the first grade, I told the story on the podcast, my daughter in the first grade comes home and says, daddy, you're white, right? And I'm like, yes. She says, she says, do you treat people badly? And I'm like, no, I, I don't treat people. Which was, well, we learned in school, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, you know what? What did they do here? Like, why is the first grade, 
teaching my daughter about something. And I said it sound like she still believes in Santa Claus. Her, her ability to understand complex things in the world is extremely limited. There's no way she's going to understand race. I know adults who don't understand the idea of people being born innocent. I know whole political movements that will tell you that because I'm white, I am somehow responsible for things that happen, you know, like, like logic. And I suppose my daughter somehow is supposed to understand that her dad, even though he's white, is not responsible for well. So I was really bothered by that. And now the reason I say I don't disagree with you because if I, if I was a, if I, I can imagine if I was a, a black family, I wouldn't have that luxury. I, I, I would understand, I, I would have to broach that issue with them because it, it would, it, real life would probably be just too, uh, too in my face to, 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 you know, to, to have that luxury that I, that I, I had. So I, I, I do think, but I, you know, and now just to go on. So then I, I did want to start teaching my kids about, um, race and like one of our dearest friends, uh, Roslyn, you know, Roslyn, uh, hot time, you know, yeah. she comes over a lot and I said, well, you know, maybe you should talk to, cause she grew up in like, she grew up in, in basically in the, in the South, right after Jim Crow ended, like right out. So she really has a very real understanding of what it's like. And I encourage them to talk to her about it and for her to explain. And then I did something that got me a lot of trouble. I sat them down and I read, now my daughter was already in third grade. Or, and my son was in first grade or maybe it was, anyway, I read them To Kill a Mockingbird. And I talked about it on the podcast and I got a lot of blowback. How could you read your kids To Kill a Mockingbird, blah, 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 blah. And, but I remember hearing the story when I was a kid and I remember it staying with me. And I remember really it being a positive thing to, to learn about when I was young. And I didn't see why it would be any different from my kids. Well, let me just tell you, even though I'm, you know, I'm not being very focused here, it was the best thing I ever did. My kids were so moved by this story. And rather than preaching to them, everything came from them. Daddy, why did they do this? Why did they, how could they do that? That's just wrong, daddy. You don't like, like, you know, and, and everything that you would want the story to do, I saw it doing them. And it gave them a, it gave them a vision of the, seemed to give them a, a perspective on the racial issue that I thought was very healthy, which is that, it's, it's inhumane to treat people by the color of their skin rather than what they were getting from school, which was white people. They're learning about race in school now, not so much the way I learned about race, but how horrible racism is and white people were guilty of it. They're almost learning that white people are, are to be suspected. And that's why the conversation should start at home, Yeah. right? You just proved that point. That no, I didn't prove it. I, I say I, it's, it's nuanced because I didn't, but I didn't want to bring it up before I had to. Right. If you start young and you explain to children that they understand equal versus unequal, they understand fair versus unfair. They'll say, so it's more cake than I do. Or they have more candy. They get the basic concepts, right? And they understand colors because one of the first thing you learn is colors and then you do alphabets and so forth, right? Okay. They know these basic concepts already. Can I interrupt so you can just one second? I'm sorry, just to be clear with it. So but what, but there was a change. The change was that Mila, my daughter, she knew Rosalind's skin was dark. Mm -hmm. And then one day she came home and knew Rosalind was black. And that's a different thing. She didn't know, she know, she know she, now she realized, well, she's black and that's a thing. And actually that's an important thing. It's important, to, it's important to bad people, 
and it's important to good people, but it's important. And she had no idea of that. She did, of course, saw the variation, but she never put Rosalind in the category of those black people. And that was, I mean, it's part of life. You know, you couldn't, couldn't shelter from her forever, but it was sad. It was a sad <laughs> day to all of a sudden, she was seeing our friend as black as opposed to just our friend with, with dark skin, as opposed to her daddy has light skin and blue eyes, and my daughter has brown eyes. Like, she did, there was no worldview to this. And now she's having to look at it through a worldview that she's not really old enough to understand. And, and that's, you know, anyway, that's why I, I don't have a clear point of view on it, but it's just sad. Well, I mean, if, and imagine if you had probably gone about it a different way and talked about it early on. Like, people are different. Some people get treated differently because of how they look, because of whatever, their, their eye shape, their hair color, their, the texture of their hair, the color of their skin and so forth. And in this family, we treat everyone equally because we have friends. You see who comes through, in and out the house. And when you are the one that teaches that to a child, it's, I think it's better because you're passing on values that are important and you're building that structure so that when your child does face a microaggression, which is not in your face racism, but they see someone being treated differently. They see someone, you know, crossing the street because they see a black person coming, right? And they want to walk on the other side of the road. Or they don't pick someone when they're playing a game because of obviously they're the color of their skin. Because they, they, they assume the Jews are the worst in the team. Right. When they, <laughs> when they see these subtle things, they'll know it's, what's right from wrong versus learning about it in a very like, traumatizing way by seeing it on the news with people getting killed. So I think when you start those values at home, you have that control. Um, and your children know that you're not afraid to talk about it, that you're a safe person to come and talk to about these things and they trust you and they're open with you. So it's not so abrasive as the way that you presented it. And so if you start at home that way, I think it actually gives you more control and, and also more provides more safety to your family. But isn't like maybe for, for older kids, like maybe teenagers or something like that, with all the social media and all this, it doesn't help them to reform like an opinion. It just like they will go one direction or the other because they don't have all the right information. So older children see it and they joke about it in school. You know, like I'll have clients who tell me that their friends use racial slurs all the time. And this is in like Manhattan, right? People who are very well educated a lot of money and apparently liberal, but they're still around people, right? Who say racial slurs. And like, so, I mean, you can say that we, that you're in a society where you don't see color, but racism is everywhere. Um, and so older teenagers, um, older kids are aware of it because they are seeing it on social media and they're talking about it and they're witnessing it. And some of them do something about it and some of them don't, and some people are part of it. Um, so, you know, I think- in your experience, are you sure, or how sure are we that when a, someone uses a racial slur that it's in, an indication of um, a racial animus? I'm, not like, I'm, I'm talking about among kids because there is this phenomenon among kids that when something is so forbidden and they're just told you're absolutely not supposed to do this, they're just tempted to say it and, and be outrageous and... Um, you know, they, they see it in TV, they see it in movies, and they emulate it. And, like, I wonder, do they even know what they're even doing? Like, we, we project a lot of adult wisdom and adult motivations onto 
to kids. I mean, they kick dogs, right? I mean, they like they do they do the most ridiculous things at that age. Um, and, well, and it, yeah. kicking dogs is like not a it's not a good sign. <laughs> well, they pull all oh, the wings off flies. So, I mean, they they I'm saying kids they they do all kinds of things that just because they're taboo and because they're defiant. Like it's like it's a, like defiance is part of just doing the opposite. I'm not supposed to do this. I'm going to do it. And if that, and if I'm never supposed to say anything about race, I'm going to say something about race. I'm not trying to defend the racist kids here, by the way. I'm sure plenty of them are racist. I just don't know, like, if some high school kids are, like, mouthing off if, it, if we well, might I mean, react to it. Yeah. I can speak from what I've seen in my clinical practice and from what I've read in the literature. And typically when people use these slurs, there is a core lack of empathy. And it's, it's actually something that is very difficult to treat because people learn empathy from their parents. And even though parents will swear up and down, I, they didn't hear it from me, they may, may have not heard it from them, but they saw a pattern of a lack of putting, the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes from their parents and they're modeling what they see. Well, with oh, well then you gotta explain to me what you mean. When you say using racial slurs, you mean actually calling somebody? Like, oh no, that, that I didn't thought, I didn't think that, I didn't understand what you meant. No, that I, I, that I retract. I thought you meant like joking with the word or, 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 but no, calling somebody with the intention to hurt somebody you know, oh, yeah. speaks for itself. Because people have been troubled for just using the word or, you know. Um, like in a rap song or something like that. Or just like joking oh. with it. What's up, my blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and two white people will, will say. I mean, that's, yeah. that's not the same thing as. Yeah, no, that's what I meant, yeah. No, no, I, I didn't know you meant like actually calling. Liberal no. kids in New York, they're going, that's horrible. That's uh -huh. Yeah. How do you explain <laughs> that? Well, how do you explain it? Like, I, again, from what you see with your, your, the, your role models, the, the people who mentor you, who are your parents. You think their parents are calling people by the N-word? No. No. So I'm seeing it because their parents don't instill empathy. They don't talk about empathy. They don't talk about putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Yeah. Um, and, and for these families, and I've worked with them, um, because they actively, a lot of them actively seek out a black therapist for that reason, um, we really have to teach and model for parents how to teach your children empathy, how to sit around the table every day, because a lot of times they don't even sit around the table or talk to each other, how to talk about, okay, today I could have done something that was self-serving but i chose to do something for someone else because i put myself in their shoes and like you literally have to train families how to teach empathy and for people who grow up you know helping others and putting themselves in other people's shoes it's it's something that sounds so far and like well we do this every day automatically but not a lot of a lot of people don't and so you have to really teach empathy and it's hard to teach Can you is there is there a reaction to the way that is being taught like for instance so i talk about reading to kill a mockingbird and, and which and I think it did bring a lot of empathy out of my kids because they just responded to the to the horribleness of the story you know they didn't see themselves in the story um they saw the story but I like imagine like if I were to raise German kids and I really um in, in teaching them about stuff made it very clear to them that well actually you're the children of the Nazis wouldn't that have some kind of, like, is that something that we, we should be careful with? Because is there a natural reaction there, which could actually be the opposite of what we're trying to accomplish in terms of empathy, when you actually, when the kid internalizes, especially young age, that somehow he's mixed up in this 
and might be responsible, his parents might be responsible, and what he might maybe then say, fuck that, you know? Like, like I'm just, because you know, the human mind is very weird, you know? Children need to learn about their history and both the good and the bad, or else how are we gonna do anything about our future, right? And the same with African-Americans, right? There are some slaves that sold other slaves, you know? So you, you really have to be honest with children and talk about what really happened. Because if you shield them from it, they're going to learn it somewhere else. They're going to learn it on their own anyway. And they know when you're hiding things from them. They know when you're uncomfortable. They're going to sense that. So it's empowering to know the truth, both the good and the bad. Can you actually? I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying is 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 probably right. It's just maybe I'm not expressing, but there's something going on here, which I feel is buying into the notion that we are actually our history, and that we can actually be judged by the people who look like us who've done similar things. And I and I think that's like I said, I see a lot of adults thinking that way, and I just think it's that kids easily fall prey to that and like i've really tried to bring that out to my kids like you know well if daddy if daddy hurt somebody and then somebody went and hurt you would you think would you think that would you like to say it sound like you know what 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 your daddy did or what someone who looked like you did or or is is i mean that's it, it is fundamentally a one of the assumptions of racism actually is that you're not born completely innocent and we we, we mix it in a little bit with, well, actually you are kind of not born innocent. And I think these are hard things for kids to understand. And I, I just wonder if, if when it's all studied, if there is some best way to teach race to them, to bring out the empathy. And that in some way means avoiding as much as we can the defensiveness of race at a young age. And I, I don't know if they're ready for that. And I think the natural, the natural urge when you feel defensive is to push back the other way. And that's the kind of the opposite of empathy. I just, I just feel that. I, I mean, I, I know I, I could be totally wrong. I hope I'm not saying I, anything I, offensive. I, I don't mean I, to. I, I just, I thought this was always ironic when my kids were in school, that uh, where they grew up, the town we grew up in was so white that when they did To Kill a Mockingbird, this is true, all the black parts are played by Asian kids. <laughs> I swear to God, because it was over 99 for Pearl River, New York, was over 99% white. So all the black parts are played by Asian kids, which I thought was like, huh. <laughs> Is that allowed? That, well, that's, what it was, that's the way it was done. That was like uh, 20 years ago, so. No, less, what am I talking about? Yeah, like um, 10 years ago. I would encourage everybody to read it. I mean, I re just re it's, it's, really, it's, it's really good. I, I had forgotten how good it was. And it was an excellent experience for the family. And after we read it, we all watched the movie together. It's, it's really good. So, Dr. Joseph, can racism be cured? Like, <laughs> it's is, it, asking, is it a psychological thing? So, it's, it's not in the DSM-5, which is the Bible of psychiatry. It's not, like, considered a medical condition. But I think people start to look at hate and bias and try and understand it scientifically because it's a real problem. Um, it costs so much money to cities when they have to pay out because of um, race-based crimes and so forth, especially when they're done and carried out by, you know, the police and, so, and, and, and people who are getting paid by the city. So 
I think there's a real push to understand why it is that people hate. And I do think that teaching children at an early age about race and racism has its payoffs and it has its long-term benefits because, you know, children understand when they have privilege and they feel guilt when they have privilege. Very young children understand it and very young children express guilt. And when you teach people about it, they can do something about it. If you don't teach them, they're going to learn it somewhere else. And so I think that, you know, by investing in this and having that conversation, you are going to raise a generation that you're proud of because you're raising nuanced, intelligent children who are thinking about the problems of the world and, and feeling like they could do something about it versus feeling powerless about it when they learn about it in school by reading To Kill a Mockingbird and hearing about this stuff for the first time. I think that can be um, really heavy for them if they're hearing about it outside their home for the first time. And they're gonna find out anyway, they're on their, they're on their devices. If you don't have the parent um, like uh, safety um, modifications on your smartphones or your tablets, they're gonna, they're gonna see things. Things are gonna pop up and they're gonna learn about it that way. So, you know, try and get ahead of that. Um, get, get, I don't know what, what, um, what I always think about, first of all, I th the, the best answer would obviously be to have natural, you know, relationships with, with diverse people that you're, I mean, my kids are really lucky that way. So, so it's, um, because otherwise, whatever you're telling them, it's an academic thing. You're, you're teaching them in, in theory and, and, you know, that's only, and, and you see people overshoot. Like, I mean, how many times have I seen the white person react 10 times worse than the black person to the same supposed, you know, hypothetical racial thing because the white person is um, acting the way they, they've read about and they ought to react and the black person actually react like a black person so they, they have a natural reaction to it. So when, when, when you're learning about something in books and learning about other races, um, it's never gonna be a substitute for actually, you know, having an, a, a diverse lifestyle. Right. I wanna say one other thing that Leaving aside race, it is also, it is a shorthand for something just quite different. So it, it is irrelevant if you're judging somebody by the color of their skin. But it's not irrelevant in terms of a stand-in for the fact that, obviously, a Chinese family is quite different from a Mormon family, you know, in, in a million different ways. So that when you see the Chinese person, um, you, you, you could supposedly be reacting to their difference in race, but even if they looked exactly the same, you're also reacting to the fact that, that you're just so different than you are. And that has all kinds of difficulties, including you may not, you may not like their differences, just like you might not like their food. You know, like it just may just be, like if you don't like, if you're raised in a particular diet and all of a sudden another family comes over and they give you their food, you're like, this is awful. That's not any kind of racism. That's just some sort of imprinting that goes on. And at some point, I think that a lot of these, one of the obstacles here is that it's not just race. It's also very different cultures, very different cultures that are all being rubbing, rubbing up against each other. And some of the friction is not based on hate of immutable characteristics. It's just, these are different cultures and people just don't naturally the efficient water around people are totally different than they are, you know? It's interesting because we, we started off talking about exposure therapy, right? Yeah. And it's exposure, right? Yeah. So you're, you are saying that you 
your kids have the luxury because you've exposed them to your friends and it's organic and it's, it's, you know, authentic, but there are parts of America. I mean, there are parts of New York where you don't have that diversity, yeah. right? I used to, my first job out of training was in Staten Island and like all of my patients were of either Italian or Irish background. Um, and I was their black psychiatrist, right? I was the only black person they really knew. But you're already self-selecting for a particular, you're, you're like the worst ones wouldn't even come to you to begin with. No, really. Like no. If, if they went to you, they were already trying. They, they didn't know that I was black when they- Oh, they didn't know. Me. Okay. My name is Dr. Joseph. So they, first of all, they were surprised I wasn't a white man. <laughs> uh, I see. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. And I was all they had, right? So take it or leave it. But, um, but you know, like I think exposure is really important. So, and so for people who don't have access to a variety of cultures, I suggest things like having like a family night where you have different recipes you pick or a week where you learn about a certain part of the globe. Like you can have a map and one kid picks out, you know, we're going to learn about this country. And that way you're exposing your children that way. Um, you can have different recipes. Like you can have like, you know, try different cooking, cooking with different spices, play different music, you know, play different languages, watch a foreign movie. These are ways that you can gradually, again, expose your children to different ideas so that it's not so abrasive when they meet, you know, an Asian person for the first time or a black person for the first time. Um, and they're not so shocked, right? Uh, and, and I think that when you do that with children, you're, you're helping them, A, with their anxiety because a lot of times people react certain ways because they're anxious. Um, so a lot of racism can be anxiety-based mm -hmm. uh, because it's something new and you don't know how, what to do. So your first instinct is fair, and then fair breeds hate, right? Um, and so you can do these things with young children. You can do, you can show them books. There are a lot of great books. The New York Times just put out a list of books that are age appropriate to, to talk about differences and race and cultures. And you can use these at different developmental stages. So there are things that you can do that are more subtle and feel more organic and, and, and less fake. Um, to expose your children to different cultures and to different races um, without just talking about racism, you know? There, but I do think it's Good. Well, oh, so I, I, yeah, you would say. Uh, oh, say, I would say, I don't know what, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I'm just I, amazed that everyone just, only the Jews matter. That's that, that, <laughs> actually, actually that, that was going to be my question is, you know, there's a lot of racism against Jews. It's actually the number one uh, primary. By Jews, by Jews, racism by Jews. Huh? She's pointing out racism by Jews. Not no, no, Jews. I understand. I, I'm saying my question was against Jews, you know. Uh, and, you know, I don't know how people like, so it's not about color, it's about culture, right? In this particular situation. Mm -hmm. um, well, maybe. it's both oh i'm confused i i mean i mean for me for me like like i don't know if, uh, if anybody else grew up somewhere else like um but in the middle east for example you know you don't get the facts you know like like the jews are like the enemies like they, they teach you that in school you know yeah. like and and i'm sure they do the same thing in the in the opposite you know um Look, and uh, but 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 growing up you know you understand and you learn from your parents, like you said, you know, this is the first thing that you understand is this is not true. These are not facts. You know, now everything is like available, all the information is available. So I feel that if somebody choose to be racist, there's something wrong with them. It's not about information anymore. 
well, I think, oh. go ahead. You want to say something? I'll go ahead. No, I was just going to say, if you just, I think it's just if you raise your kid to be a good person, then they, all this stuff doesn't even matter. It shouldn't okay. even, you know what I mean? You just have good morals and you love everyone equally. This, this is what I think. This is what I think. And you guys tell me if you disagree with me. Because I do a lot of thinking about this. I don't, I don't know. Even before, you know, it, it was, the thing. It's, it's just such an important issue. So everything that I hear, of course, I hate anti-Semitism. I hate racism, all that stuff. But everything, every time I hear a story, I have to, you know, discount it or, 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 or process it through certain things I have to admit to myself. For instance, if my neighborhood became Hasidic, I would not be happy about that. I would not, I would not want to live in a Hasidic neighborhood. I'm not, I, don't, I, have, I, I'm not, I love Hasidic people. I, I wouldn't want that, number one. Number two, I fly, I fly you know, overseas with planes with full of Hasids and Orthodox Jews. I know they act differently. I know they do. I'll go with, I, mean, I, I, I know that they do. And I know that when people react to that, it's not because they hate Jews. Yeah. And, and so, so all I can in the end process this as, in the end is that you're not gonna actually convince people that there's no group differences. You can preach it all you want and maybe you, you can get to a world where everybody will nod their head and never let on that they actually don't believe it. But we know it's not true. Nobody actually thinks that. That is not the challenge of being a good person is to pretend something that you know is not true is true. And that's kind of what's being, I think, taught. The challenge is that no matter what may be true, that you have to treat everybody in, as an individual. That is what you have to do. It's not a perfect solution. It's the only thing you can actually demand of someone. You are not going to demand somebody tell, to, to go to some black people and say, listen, you shouldn't care whether you live in Harlem or in a Hasidic neighborhood or in Chinatown. It shouldn't matter to you at all. And by the way, if you're not just as happily in anyone, happy in any one of those neighborhoods, you're some kind of racist. No, no, that's not that. You, they'll say, yeah, you're right. I should be racist. But they don't, nobody believes that. Or if you notice, if you notice anything different between those groups, you're some kind of racist. No, but the well, thing is, you cannot. You have to treat everybody the same, and you have to learn to enjoy. This is a really important point, I think. You have to learn to enjoy the diversity between groups, not pretend it's not there, because there's there's tremendous learning. I mean, every experience that I've had being where I found myself like the odd man out in a bunch of, in a, in, in a, like in a black situation or a Korean situation or whatever it was. And it went on for periods of time without going into details. Those were very, very enriching. You know, like I got so much out of that. I learned so much and I grew and, and God forbid it, it happened at a time where I had to be really worried about being influenced or showing that I was influenced or playing the wrong music. Or I can imagine a different situation like, saying, I, I love that fashion, can I wear that? Like, I think a lot of these, this, this stuff about cultural appropriation is very da dangerous because it makes it dangerous to be nat to naturally mix with people and, and become one with people. Like, if you love klezmer music, like, and you want to start introducing klezmer themes into your hip hop, like, I should, like, that's awesome, I'm so flattered. Like, what, like you're, you're stealing my music, you know? This, this, all this is all mixed together. I think we are really going wrong in certain ways. I mean, I guess you, you, it's a winding road, but in certain ways, if, if you try to, unless you can tell me what the goal is, like where we want to be 50 years from now in terms of a multiracial society, 
if the goal is we want everybody to have sharp differences and these people can say these things and these people can use this language, these people can use this music and only these people can have restaurants with this food and blah, blah and, and all of it. If that's the goal, then this is the direction we're going. But if the well, goal is to try to live as one people, we're going to have to, we're going to have to take the temperature down a little bit. And, and, and I just think, I just well, think. But yeah. let's, let's ask someone who really hates the Jews. Tony, uh, <laughs> what, what, uh, why, why you, you don't like the Jews? Everybody's silent. Now, this is very important to me. It's, it's something. It's something I said that I strongly disagreed with in this in this thing because it's, people don't talk like this out loud that often. What I'm no, saying. I I think you're absolutely right. You know, you know, I thought about that the other day. I was watching Netflix. I was, I was watching the movie Airplane, and I imagine if this movie's playing right now, it's impossible. You know, and they make fun of every race, every ethnicity. You know equal it's just like they celebrate the differences like norm said it's just like you know there's parts of it that it's funny and and noticeable everybody knows the difference you know but you can't do that anymore you can't say anything anymore i'm not talking about racial stuff i'm talking about like some stuff you can't you can't oh that's racist you know so it's good that i'm mixed so i can be both so whenever i need to uh i i lean to that side i think one thing that i would say about that is that you know it's you sound like you're from a position of privilege because um, for a lot of people, if you are not talking about racism and about correcting it, um, then, and you're in a position of privilege, then you're really not, in my opinion, doing enough. Because- I'm not talking about not talking about racism. It's important for you to talk about how black people are, you know, they came over as slaves, they're treated differently, they don't have opportunities, and the system is their systemic racism and it's beyond equality it's it's a, the lack of um, of true equity so it's inequity so i think talking about it is important teaching kids about race is important and going a step further and saying you know there are groups that are darker and and targeted and we really need to do something about this i think and i and i do think that you know the whole talk about you can't say anything anymore and the censorship I think it, it's, it stems from that feeling that people are not acknowledging this problem and doing enough about it. And I think that once people feel like we're doing enough about it, then you'll have less censorship because it won't be as okay. um, so, much of a... So, so let, me give you, let, me, no, let, me, let me say why, why I, I, I respect what you're saying. And I agree with most of it, but let me, let me just zoom in on it. So I'm actually cutting some slack here to not to white people, but to non-white people. So for instance, uh, when black people were complaining about Harlem becoming gentrified, Harlem becoming less black, there were a lot of people who weaponized that um, as kind of some sort of discrimination, some, some sort of racism. I'm like, well, no, like, like why would, why, I, I don't begrudge them. Why wouldn't they want Harlem to stay black? But the truth is that if a white, if an Italian neighborhood wants to stay Italian, we do view that very suspiciously. So there has to be some kind of unifying theory to all this. Otherwise, we're, we're what I maybe this is the theory, but I have trouble saying, well, these are the principles, but they only apply. This principle applies to people of that color, and this people principle applies to people of that color, and that's the way it'll always be. So therefore, if you're black and you want to keep white people out, that that will always be okay. And if you're white and you want to keep black people out that will never be okay. That, that doesn't seem to me to be where we want to go. And that's why I think we have to cut out an allowance for the fact that 
people are comfortable among their own and and that that is not necessarily racism people do notice differences between their groups and others and noticing them is doesn't mean that they hate the other people and whatever it is and until we're all mixed together this is going to be the status quo and, and like i said and it's not the perfect solution so like the but the only thing that covers all bases is that people need to treat everybody the same i i don't know i i, I don't think that i don't think that that's accurate because with harlem to use that specific example you're talking about african americans who are you know dealing with systemic racism and they don't have the opportunities that other people have they're at the they're really at the bottom of the barrel so they that's not why they want harlem to say black they don't have, it was, I think it was Columbia University was buying up a lot of the property because Morningside campus is there and they were trying to like get more space for their dormitories, for their grad schools and so forth. And the people who were there could, they, I mean, they couldn't fight Columbia. Columbia is like. Okay. So this is what, this is, so this is what you're doing and I, and I don't agree with it. Uh -huh. I think that all humans are the same and it's, I, you're not going to convince me that there's one group of hum humans who are more likely to be chauvinistic to themselves, cloistered, uh, uh, um, you know, feel superior than another group. Every bad vulnerability that white people have in terms of the bad side of their nature, I believe is present in Asian and black people and Native Americans as well. And I believe that a black, a, a, a black neighborhood is just as likely for the worst reasons or all the reasons on the spectrum that somebody to, to want to stay black as a white neighborhood would want to stay white. And some of those reasons are ugly. And some of those reasons are not ugly, meaning like, like, yeah, if you're Hasidic, you're going to be comfortable in a Hasidic neighborhood. You're not going to be comfortable in Harlem and vice versa. And, and I am not prepared to, to say that we can just say, well, actually, these, these are not universal principles. You need to tell me what color person we're talking about first. And then I can tell you whether it's okay for them to feel this way or whether they do feel that way. So I'm saying that I respect the idea of a cultural, a cultural black neighborhood wanting to stay culturally black. Now they may not be, that may not be realistic because after all, you know, black neighborhoods in Brooklyn used to be Jewish neighborhoods. You know, it's a free country and you can't, you can't control these things somehow. But the lament that I liked it better when it was a black neighborhood than when, it, when all the Orthodox Jews moved in. I don't regard that as anti-Semitism. Now, if you beat somebody up on the street because they have a yarmulke, that's when you've crossed the line into hate. That's when you're not treating everybody as an individual. But no, just like, fuck, gentrification. the are moving into my neighborhood. I don't want this neighborhood to turn Hasid. You know what? If it keeps getting more Hasidic, I may move out. I'm that's, not offended that's by not that. Accurate. That's not accurate. Gentrification happens when you have a group of people who cannot afford to outbid the the, the 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 more economically powerful group and that's well, you say group of people or you could say or you could say humans that was what was happening in Harlem I right, think but but they're they human or to stay there and their argument was because of systemic racism you have a disenfranchised group that just can't compete with Columbia University it, I mean it no but it also, it also happened in Brooklyn it happened yeah, you have disenfranchised. If you if you if you do not acknowledge systemic racism, you can't do anything about it. No, no, and I'm I think not, it's I, I, think, I think it's irrelevant to what I'm saying. I'm not I'm not I'm not disputing it at all. I'm just saying that the 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 
the fact that I use, I think it's pretty clear that the reason people, Harlem was a very special, a black cultural icon in the world, Harlem, right? So for years and years and years. And, and seeing that come apart is a sad thing, even, even, if, even if it came apart because black people became so successful that they moved out and then poor Asians moved in in, in, in exactly the opposite mechanism, it would still, the people who were left behind would still feel, shit, I, I wish this stayed the neighborhood that I was comfortable in. That's not because I don't like Asians. I, don't, I, I just think, I mean, you're kind of saying what I'm, exactly the opposite of what I'm saying is I, I think that there's this way of, of saying that except for white people, nobody is, is, has any kind of chauvinism or, or, or racial, or, or ethnic, or I don't, I don't know what the, what the right words are these days, but I just think that it's just, a lot of this is just very natural and it's not the same thing as hate. That's all I'm saying. I just, I don't think that, and again, I was going from the opposite direction. When I saw black people being upset that, the, that Orthodox Jews were moving into their neighborhood, I don't regard that as anti-Semitism. I understand that anti-Semitism can live very well in that Petri dish, of, 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 in that environment. But the fact is, I wouldn't want my neighborhood becoming Hasidic. And that's not because of I'm poor or structural racism. I wouldn't want my neighborhood to change into something that I'm not a fish in water in. I just wouldn't. I want my neighborhood to be water and I want to be a fish. And I don't know the Hasids, you know, and they're my people. I just, they're just different than I am. I, John, so you're, you're, not, you're, not, you're not the only one. Nobody wants to Hasid around. Uh, <laughs> no, and, and the, but the truth is, once you do get to know them, they act. You, you can actually, they're, they're awesome. You can be nice and, and and hang out with them. But in some ways, I don't. I don't know. I, I I think that a lot of things that a lot of times it's called anti-Semitism when that may not be fair. Now, when uh, what's his name uh, says about the Jews being the real savages, what's his name? Uh, Nick Cannon. Nick Cannon. Nick Cannon. Uh, yeah. Now, now you now you kind of cross the line. <laughs> He just wanted to be in the news again. Right. I, th- I, I, I think, I don't know. Uh, well, Nick is a perfect example because, what's her, what's her name, Jamil Hill, is that her name? Who writes for The Atlantic? I don't know. She, they asked her, she was on CNN and they asked her um, what she thought about it and she, she didn't defend him, but she said, well, you know, I think it's a more subtle conversation because if you criticize, because Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wrote an amazing column criticizing Nick Cannon. And she said, well, if you criticize them, then, then people, it might undermine the cause of social justice and take people's eyes off, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I see it exactly the opposite. I was like, what could be more sparkling than a BLM movement that had a really quick reflex of zero tolerance towards any bigotry? So it was like, why would that undermine their cause if as soon as Nick Cannon said something immediately he was just buried in critical tweets from within the organization it's like you know you you can't do that to other people we're fighting we're fighting against people doing it to us you shouldn't be doing it to others like why would that be a not be the smartest strategy they could do but but i i guess you know Tony's, you don't understand what I'm saying, Tony? I don't know who Nick Cannon is. That's oh, what I'm okay. <laughs> I have no idea who Nick Cannon is. He's well known for uh, marrying uh, Mariah Carey. 
He's the the the, the host in America Get uh, American Got Talent or something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm I'm Jewish. I'm troubled when I see him say something like that, and I see a hesitancy to to smash him. Yeah, like why why would there be any hesitancy? But he, he didn't only say Jews. He said Jews and white people. Well, first he's talking about Jews, then he was two different things. Yeah, first he said Jews, and then he's talking about Jews and white people. Yeah. But whatever it is, like why why would anybody be reluctant? In any movement that fights bigotry, why would there be five seconds hesitation to say, shut up, dude, what's the matter with you? Like, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had no hesitation. And actually, Charles Barkley uh, said something, too. Um, I think that's this. I think Jabbar's seeing it very, very clearly when others are not. Um, I, don't, I think he did, he did a lot of good by writing that column uh, for the cause that, he's, that he cares about deeply, I thought by acknowledging it, it was wrong. Anyway. Yeah, so I'm still trying to find, what does Nick Cannon do besides being married to Mariah Carey? What he hosts he TV shows, he hosts TV shows. Okay, all right. Dr. Joseph, if you have any comment on Nick Cannon, you can your armchair uh, analyze him. <laughs> <laughs> I have no comment on that one. I, I will I, tell you this, you're like, you're like this, Dr. Dr. Joseph, uh -huh. about Nick Cannon. So I know um, some black Israelites. And Nick Cannon, it's pretty clear to me, he's, he's um, uh, in the sways of like a black Israelite uh, ideology. And, but this is what's so interesting. In my experience, the, the two guys I know, they do believe that stuff. They believe that the whites were some sort of savages and that the Jews were not real Jews. And they, everything Nick Cannon said is stuff I've heard before. Is he a black Israelite? Well, he wears the turban yeah. kind of thing that a black Israelite friend of mine wears. And, but everything he's saying is exactly, is from that, it's from that book. So, but this is what's so interesting. The guys I know who believe this stuff, they're actually friends of mine. I mean, in other words, the human mind is so not rigorous in a way that they are able to, on the one hand, believe all this horrible racial stuff and yet I know that if I were in trouble, one of these guys in particular would be the first fucking guy to show up, like to, to fight, to defend me. And so even among people saying stuff that is clearly racist, I've noticed that they're more complex than that. You know, I, 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 I don't know what- I, I think that the, the black American man is yeah. a complex person to begin with. First of all, who has it worse? Uh, I, I mean, it's just like a terrible experience for black men. Um, and I think that's probably why people hesitated to respond because black men have been tortured, targeted, stomped on, and they're angry and rightfully so. And I think that's where the hesitation came. I don't condone hate, period. I don't think it's okay. But I think that it's just a very complex mind, right? People who are told that they are simple and not complex are so complex because they're able to still survive in this world that where they're at the bottom of the, of the bucket. So, you know, so for your friends who are the black Israelites who speak hate, spew hate, but still have your back, you know, it, there's, there's a lot of complex complexities there. But this yeah. is what I would take issue with you here. Because this is what I, I, I no, I'm not because this is very, you're, you're right about what you said, of course. And I, and I, I, I think that what you're describing is that to be raised black in America is just, you're lucky if, it, if you're lucky, a black man, you're very, very lucky if you were not traumatized in some way by the experience on the whole. It, it, I, I, I agree with that, I've said that for many years. 
But, but we can't we can't let that degrade principles because in, in every single way that a black man is a product of his difficult upbringing, so actually is the white racist. So actually is the guy who was raised in a trailer park in Alabama and heard the N-word all day long and was fed all kinds of resentments, whatever. You know, perception becomes reality. It doesn't even matter whether what they were told was true or not. If they're told that, that they're getting the bottom of the barrel and they're fed all that, then they are 100% um, as a product of that as much as the black guy is a product of what happened to him. And we cannot allow that to, to we, we still have to say no, I, I get it, but no, yeah. not, this is not no, okay. No, I agree with you. It's I, not I okay. It, but I think to answer your question about how could your friend still be your friend and say these things, I think it's very complex because I think that no one has this, the struggle that a black man has. And so you yeah. have to start to acknowledge and validate that the complexity. I, I agree with that. Although the biggest victims of hateful assaults uh, the last year have been Jews, and half of them happened in the five boroughs of Manhattan, of New York City. Um, so. What do you mean hateful assaults? Like, like assault, hate, hate crime hate assault. Crimes? Hate crime hate assault, hate yeah. Crimes? Yeah. It was okay. an all time record last year, 2019, I think was the statistic. And Probably half of it is mine. <laughs> and, and, but it's mostly in, it's mostly in religious Jews, uh, the people who are identifiable as Jews on the streets. And um, so we do, we, we can lose sight of other people's, that's not my experience. I don't, I don't fear for that, even though Hatem says I look Jewish. But I mean, <laughs> uh, uh, it is, um, you know, to, always to the extent that we can be universal um, to human beings, which does not mean in any way de-emphasizing people's experiences. It really doesn't. So, so but, no, just maybe, to see, but just to see this as a human a human responsibility rather than an extra responsibility to, to any one suffering person over another person, any one victim of bigotry over another victim of bigotry, I think that we're moving in a much better direction that there's an end game where we can all actually love each other. I, 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 I'm really worried about the, 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 the direction we're going. Let me ask you this. You said before like, um, that, um, you know, because as a white person, you're not responsible for some, something that happened before. As any person, uh, nobody's so, responsible for, so for why, why, when there's a terrorist attack, they say, oh, well, Muslim is not speaking out. They're not apologizing. They're not. Why, in that case, we are responsible for something that has nothing to do with us? If it's no, you're not, logic. You're not responsible. But you heard that a lot. Everybody's saying, we never hear Muslims say anything. Oh, so let me answer you. So first of all, like, just, just as a like, total, if we were sitting around the comedian table um, in the olive tree, and there are a bunch of German people there. And now don't forget, the Germans are, you know, one generation or two generations away from people who, who did the shit, right? And I started screaming at these German people and, and, and calling them to task with it. But the, the comedians would look at me like I was a crazy person. Like, what are you doing? Like, that, that's, you know, you can't attack these people. So that's what I'm saying. Like, you can't, but, but what, what you're describing is something a little bit different, I think, which is that when, when the society is trying to figure out what's going on here, like what, what, what is the feeling here? Um, if you have 
a lot of, uh, if you have something going on and you sense a reluctance to criticize it, you feel or speak out against it, one explanation could be that you have sympathy with that. And so that's why people wonder in the same way that um, if the governor of Georgia doesn't speak out against some you know, white people doing horrible racist things and seems reluctant to criticize it, you say, no, no, you're a white, you're a white leader here. There's something going on really fucked up in the white community. You need to, you need to be clear about how you feel about this. So I, I think that's correct. I think that if you see, if you see a lot of um, Jewish people, well, priests, you see a lot of priests molesting children and you sense that priests are reluctant to criticize it, you say, well, what's going on here? What's with you priests? Like, why, why are you not the first people to criticize? Yeah, but you don't want every priest to come out and be like, oh, I'm sorry, you know? I think the same thing with the Nick Nat Cannon thing. Like, you know, not every black person have to come and like, oh, that's wrong. Because no, it's not everybody. No, it's obviously I wrong. I don't expect Dr. Joseph to say anything about Nick Cannon. I'm saying that if you are if you are a person that matters in an organization that is fighting bigotry, that's that's when you're supposed to be expected to to say something about something like this. Not I don't expect the every average everyday person to make a statement. As a matter of fact, I wish they would shut up on Twitter and Facebook with their virtue signaling, de decrying every single thing that happens in the world. I'm just saying, like, if you're, if you're fighting, if, if part of your language in fighting bigotry is to, if you're, if, what kind of strategy is it to normalize everything in the world you're trying to eradicate? Like when the governor of Chicago, or the mayor of Chicago got mad and said, uh, uh, I don't care, Karen, or, or uh, we, we don't care to Ivanka Trump, whatever it is. Now, what is Karen? Karen is a racial epithet of a like an annoying white woman, right? Yeah. I'm like, why would you do that? You're the you're the you're the mayor of Chicago. You're gonna. How do I explain to my daughter that? Listen, Mila, it's it is absolutely un it is absolutely unacceptable to call somebody a name based on their race unless it's a white person. Like you try explaining that to an eight-year-old. Well, what, but the mayor of Chicago called her a cat. What's a Karen, Daddy? Well, Karen is an insult. It's you know something where you're making fun of somebody's whiteness. But why is that okay, Daddy? Well, it's okay because she's white, right? Like, or or maybe you should tell her the story, the real story, which is well, there was a woman named Karen that she no, no. This was is, racist. No, no, this is the real story. It's not okay. It's not okay. And um, and. I don't understand. Are you saying that Black, Black Lives Matter should have come out and spoken against Nick Cannon? Is that, is that your, is that the I'm, argument? I'm, I'm saying that, um, well, that was, that was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's argument. And I, I think he was, he was right. He was, he, he, was, he was complaining, the column that he wrote was that not, not enough people, um, uh, not enough important people were um, re reacting to this sufficiently and I, I haven't read it in a while but what i got from it was that there is a difference between a cause which is fighting uh for my people and there was also a cause which is um fighting for my people but but also is fighting against in racism wherever it lurks so martin luther king that you can fill a whole you know pages with quotes that he injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere whatever he he spent a lot of time while fighting for the for that cause making very very clear that all bigotry was 
unacceptable, very, very clear. And that to people like of my father at the time when I grew up, that was very moving to somebody like an Israeli guy in my home in the 60s. He was very, very moved by that to, to, to the point where I've told this story where like I, I, he died, Martin Luther King died when I was six. And I can remember the trauma in my household. I can remember my father sitting me down explaining to me who Martin Luther King was to a six-year-old, very much along the lines of what you're saying that people should do today. But this was, a, this was another world in 1968. As opposed to what his feeling would have been if Martin Luther King had simply said these things, but if somebody said, you dumb Jew bastard, Martin Luther King didn't care about that. That would be a different reaction to a Martin Luther King. And that's, that's, a, that's not just a moral question, that's a strategic question too. Like if you, you can't, it's, I think it's, like I said, you, you, can't, you can't normalize things you want to eradicate. It, that's not gonna work. You, you are not gonna find a way where you can actually permit yourselves to start calling people by shorthand racial epithets and at some point not lose a whole lot of support from the people who support you want. You can just not start calling people Karens, especially if you're the mayor, a sophisticated mayor of Chicago. You can do it maybe if, if, if we don't expect much from you, but if you're the mayor of Chicago and you get angry and the first thing you do is call somebody a racial epithet, it's free country but you do undermine kind of your principles there in some ways. Now, so, so, so tell me, uh, Mayor Leifert, what is your principle about racial epithets? What can she say other than it's something you can't say to people of color? Can you say it to other people? Yes. Well, how do I know who I can say it to and I can't do it? I'll tell you. If, if you hear it come out of my mouth, then it's permitted. If you don't, so, and if you can say it to white people, why can't you say it to Jews? Um, and, and like, if you can say to white people, then why aren't you undermining the whole idea that it's wrong to judge people by the color of their skin? I mean, do I sound corny? Like, you can explain it to me. I don't care. I'm not hurt by the fact that she called her a Karen. I don't, I don't reverberate, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not pained by somebody saying something. I'm saying she's oh. undermining her own cause. Okay, I Boomer. Don't I don't care what she said. <laughs> I'm just saying like, how can, it just seems very, wrong to me to permit yourself the things that you're fighting against. It just doesn't seem right. Am I missing yeah. something? I think it's a, it's a very uh, hard topic. You know? I think it's, no, I think it's simple. I think, I think it's, I mean, what, oh, somebody want to fight for her right to call people Karens? Like, is that an important part of this cause? It's, it's simple. Not, it's it's the not, thing, but, but, the only but thing that's not, no, I'm telling the only thing that's not simple about it is that we don't we don't have we don't we don't self-assured enough to say it. Kareem Abdul Jabbar, God bless that man. He he was, you know, and he lived, he's pretty old. He's seen some shit. He didn't seem he didn't find it complicated at all. He just wrote a column and it was great, and nobody could take issue with it. And he wrote cleansing. a column about the the Karen comment? No, he just wrote a column about how. I mean, I'm really zooming out. I'll put up the column. He wrote a column about it was about about um, bigotry being wrong wherever it comes from. Yeah, and why I'm, we shouldn't be reluctant. I think we all agree with that. Yeah, and and then obviously he didn't talk about Karen, but obviously uh, as a corollary to that, if you agree with that, and if you agree, listen, I'm, you have to be able to explain to somebody in a logic. I have to be able to tell my children if it's. I mean, I'll take it if it's okay. Say, sweetheart. It's okay for them to call somebody biracial epithet if they're among the following X races. 
what, but see what I, what's so much easier is to tell my daughter, it's not okay because you're not, because it's offensive to criticize somebody based on their race. That's what's offensive about it. So when you're calling somebody Karen, it's not the woman you're calling Karen that should be. What you're saying is your people are fucked up because you're white. And I can give you one shorthand. Like, can you imagine if you said, shut up, Lakeisha. I mean, be like, what? <laughs> like, you actually said? Like, like, now I understand the pain caused is different. The pain caused is radically different and the historical context is different. But just because you know that doesn't mean you should permit yourself the luxury of doing something that can't be defended. It's like, I, 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 I don't know, why would you want to do that? Keep, like, just don't call somebody Karen. Is it that hard? How, you want to fight, fight against racism? Don't indulge in generalization, generalizations based on race. Yeah, I see what you're saying, but I don't think it, it's there to be compared with, with you know, Black Lives Matter. Um, it's under, what I'm saying is that it, un, it, it undermines the cause in the sense that, I'm always thinking about the end game. If, I don't know what our goal is. If our goal is to have a, this is a very corny way to put it, have a society where we all love each other, that is not compatible with maintaining the privilege to attack people based on their race of any race. Because while white people may not feel the pain that blacks may feel of the, or that a Jew might feel of that history, they're not gonna wanna hang out and be all friendly with somebody who obviously hates them because of their race. They won't, they, they have privilege. She's right, they have privilege and it's no skin off their back and they can go on with their lives, but they're not gonna spend their time worrying in the same way that they would by, by, by a, about a cause which seems to enjoy to put them down based on their race. It's just bad strategy. And I wanna say very, very clearly, I am not offended. I am not offended. I don't, I'm, I'm not speaking for me, God forbid. I am not offended at all. I am saying that I don't, I, I like to hold people to their own, to understand what people's principles are because sometimes, sometimes it's not really principles. Sometimes what we're seeing is resentment um, uh, hidden in principles, you know, like, so I would like, I mean, well, let me ask Dr. Joseph, if I asked the mayor of Chicago what her principle was about racial epithets and I say, you just call this woman a Karen, what would her options be? What would her answer be? I honestly don't know the context or what you're even talking about, but I don't condone any type of hate. And no, I know you don't. You don't, like, just, doctor, you don't think I was trying to say that you do, do you? God, no, please. I'm not even going to try to understand where that, I, because I really wish I knew more about what you were talking about. Okay, well, I, we got to end, but I'll just bring it up. Um, just so, so I mean, where's the thing here? So I'll just show everybody so in case they want to. So uh, Dr. Joseph, obviously, as you can see, um, the pandemic uh, affected a lot of us, obviously. Uh, <laughs> you know. I wanted to ask you about, like, you know, you're, you're reading about all these um, people who are having the long-lasting effects, and if they're like still fatigued and all that stuff. And like, I was wondering if you were one of those people who are having that like fogginess, and you don't have to answer it. Well, that's a good question. Of, answer. Of, of, of <laughs> yes, sir. Answer. <laughs> I lost. I lost all hearings. Uh, uh, from the corona, I mean? Yeah, some people who've been infected are like having, are reporting symptoms like weeks, months out from, you know. 
Yeah, I mean, I had the first, I got it twice. The first time, it lasted 45 days. Uh, and uh, yeah, at some point you would you would have fogginess and like forget stuff. And like, like for example, I, I, I was trying to um, play with my computer like solitaire. I forgot the rules of the game. Wow. I tried to play chess and I couldn't remember how you play chess, you know, uh, stuff like that. Um, I remember trying to pray and I forgot the prayers. You know, I forgot what to say. Uh, it's, it, it was, uh, but that was like maybe week three or four, like towards the end. Yeah. You still uh, remember the, you still remember the death to America part of the prayer though, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, actually, I tell you a funny story. I think I said it before, but, um, you know, I'm Muslim, right? So after the, <laughs> uh, after, after the surgery, I was so, you know, out of it. And um, so the nurse came and she was like, uh, do you want me uh, to, you want your computer to play? You always play before the surgery. I was like, no, 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 I'm fine. She's like, uh, would you like your pipe, your Bible? I was like, my Bible? She's like, yeah, you read the Bible every day. And if for a minute, I really couldn't remember if I was Christian or Muslim. I was like, the Bible, something. I was like, okay. So I got the Bible. I was like, no, I didn't. This is not what I read. You know, but for a minute, I really couldn't remember you yeah, know? so as soon as you saw your suicide vest, though, then you realize that. Ah, <laughs> and then I remember, yeah. no, I, 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 saw, I, I saw the tattoo, I hate Jews, and there's a like, oh, hey. You, you, know, you know, like the movie Momentum, I wrote all over it. <laughs> I can't remember. No Jews, no Jews. Okay, okay. Okay, so, let me, so let, me, let me do this. So, okay, so, by the way, Dr. Joseph, before we get, you gave me some really good advice about um, um, my daughter the last time I, I saw you. I don't know if you remember. Uh, about her, like you, you're, you're wondering if she had like ADHD. Like ADHD, yeah. And and I and I just want to tell you, it, it really, I, I should have thanked you right about it. It was very important advice to me, and I really, really appreciate it. Just so you know, um, it, I'm glad really, that I could help. <laughs> it, no, you really did because you really um um made me feel more confident in certain things. Um, and because not everybody actually uh thinks like you. Obviously, you know that. And um, I think you were right. So I just want to thank you for oh, that. I think, I think today okay. also so, great, great advice with the, with the getting ready to school and all that, you know. Uh, so, that, so this is the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar thing. So you guys, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, where's the outrage over anti-Semitism in sports in Hollywood? But here's the part which I remembered very well. Um, he says, uh, one of the most powerful songs in the struggle against racism is Billie Holiday's Melancholic Strange Fruit. And he gets to he says, despite those who wanted to suppress the song, it went on to sell a million, co million copies that year. The song was written by a white Jewish high school girl who performed it with his wife around New York before it was given to Billie Holiday. Okay, here's the, the last paragraph. The lesson never changes, so why is it so hard for some people to learn? No one is free until everyone is free. As Martin Luther King explained, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutua mutuality. So let's act like it. If we're going to be outraged by injustice, let's be outraged by injustice against anyone. And you know, when I hear that and I say, my God, I will go and march for any cause. You know, I will, I will put black BLM on the windows of the, if, of the comedy cellar if I know that is the, 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 where, what the cause that, that I am supporting here. And that's what I'm saying as a strategic thing. It's so powerful and it doesn't undercut anything as any, I mean, nobody could, nobody could, could credibly say that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar 
would ever do anything to undercut uh, the cause of um, justice for African Americans. So, you know, it's just so, it's just so, literally, it's so moving to hear him speak that way. And then you wonder why, why it's harder. Why is somebody from the Atlantic, you know, struggling to say the same thing? Anyway, so this is the other thing. You guys can see this, right? Chicago yeah. mayor tells White House President, hey, Karen, watch your mouth after criticism. So um, the, uh, Kaylee McEnany uh, said, you know, Chicago's derelict, obviously because of all the shootings that have been going, all the children have been killed. The derelict mayor of Chicago said she should, she should request federal help for your city. And her answer is, hey, Karen, watch your mouth. So like, I don't think, <laughs> I just don't think that's a good answer. Again, I'm not offended by it. All right. I think it's, I think, I think it, un, it seriously undermines her stature as a serious person fighting for serious principles. And I, and I somehow think Kareem Abdul-Jabbar would not use the same language uh, if he were criticized. That's my, that's my take. Yeah, so fi final question, Dr. Joseph. Uh, are you optimistic about um, the future, the near future after the pandemic, psychologically for everyone? Kids, well, I, I am data driven. And so like I, based on previous pandemics in other countries, I think we should be optimistic because we are resilient and we will get through it. And other countries have gone through pandemics and we will, will survive this. And I think that we shouldn't kid ourselves. There are people who are vulnerable, like the elderly, people with, um, you know, some forms of disabilities and um, healthcare workers, they're gonna, they're gonna suffer for a long time. They're gonna have long levels, long lasting levels of anxiety, depression, um, higher suicide rates, unfortunately. But I think overall, uh, we will get through, but we can't forget the vulnerable. We really should not. Absolutely. And, and people should start seeing more psychiatrists uh, in, the, in the coming future, I think, right? And especially you. Uh, <laughs> well, me? Not you. Dr. Joseph? <laughs> Olga? Um, yeah, Olga. Oh, they should see her. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, I, th I thought you meant. <laughs> uh, I think right. yeah. take care of mental health. Everyone I has mental health, right? Everyone has physical health and mental health, and we have to maintain them. So. Dr. Who. Joseph, do you think I need a psychiatrist? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think all of us can answer that question. <laughs> I would totally come to see you. Do you, do you, you, you can prescribe drugs too, but the, honestly, do you, like when you, what's the bubble over your head? Like, do you, what, do you, are you diagnosing me? Do you think I need therapy? You can tell, you can be honest. We can all benefit from taking care of our mental health. <laughs> 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 you diagnose everyone. Very good. Very good. Good for you. You should, you should see me as healthy because, because I speak, I'm speaking, I'm speaking my mind. I got uh, no, I, uh, I, I, I think it's not normal that you're okay. You went from like, he, like huge business with like five shows every night, it's crazy all over. Five, yeah, like more. Go ahead, yeah. No, five in one club from, yeah. from you know, from the clubs and and like Vegas and the other one and to to complete silence. It's not normal to be you right now. I think you see the guitars behind you. I like to see them all smashed. <laughs> that would be normal. <laughs> I think I think Vegas is never going to reopen. I know we got to go. No, don't say that. Yeah, I think Vegas is done. Uh, no. Uh, all right, well, Dr. Joseph, when this is over, you have to come to the Comedy Cellar and have uh, dinner and watch a show. I will, for sure. We, we met your husband last time, too, right? Yeah, he's yes. so hot. Yes, he please, nice. Tony, you want to share your information? 
Yeah, I'll be sitting in um, the restaurant in about five minutes. Uh, <laughs> information. There's my email address, Tony Darrett, Facebook, or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Olga. Yeah. Can, can, I, can, I, can I just say one more thing? I know you guys got to go, but a part of the reason that I, that I harped on this stuff with Dr. Joseph, um, maybe it wasn't obvious, is because you're a psychiatrist and you have the ability to hear people say stuff that they probably won't say to many other people. You, have it, you actually hear people express their hate, deal with their hate, all, all these kind of things. But I do feel that you have a lot of insight into some of this stuff that the everyday person just doesn't. And, you know, into some of, and, and, and that's some of the stuff that I'm thinking about, even though I, I don't blame you for not um, saying more. Like, I just really wonder from the point of view of a practitioner who actually hears people talking about these things unguardedly. Everything we hear is guarded, right? Like, everything is, you're right, so I better not say that. I better tone that down. Like, we, in the public sphere, we're not hearing the unvarnished sentiments of people we're hearing a you know massage but you hear a lot of unvarnished sentiments and that's that gives you an advantage like you know something we don't and i just you know so i'm very curious how that changes your perception of things. So anyway, that's, that's oh all. yeah absolutely. i mean it does and i think that it is a privilege to hear people's like unbridled hate love whatever uh and you know i encourage people to just explore it Everyone should be exploring their own psyche, why it is they think they, the way they do, why it is they behave the way they do. I think it, we can all learn from ourselves. And in this pandemic, we, we have, some people have that luxury, right? You're locked down and you probably, you probably learned more about yourself in the past couple of months than your entire lifetime. So. Well, my wife certainly did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you do couples therapy, by the way? <laughs> all right i don't know how late is it okay i want to share your information oh i guess just that my name is alga namer that's really it you can follow me on instagram and dr joseph a lot of people want to go to see you where can they see you you can follow me on instagram at dr judith joseph all right and norm should i make an appointment for you now or <laughs> I would, I would totally go see Dr. Joseph. I, I, I don't feel like I need therapy. <laughs> you do need time. Well, guys, thank you so much. <laughs> what about Tony? Uh, you, didn't, you didn't say Tony's name. I did. Yeah, I see. Okay, okay. Sorry. Yeah. I want to listen. All right. And Life from America podcast and Comedy Cellar uh, opening soon, hopefully. All right. Yes. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Good night. Bye.